Hey, dear listener, Anthony here. Before we hop into the show, I wanted to let you know about an incredible new resource we just released, The Five Rules of Investing. Dan and I are huge advocates of modeling the behaviors of the people who have done what you hope to do. And who better to model when it comes to investing than legendary investors like Warren Buffett, Howard Marks, and Ray Dalio? This free ebook breaks down the simple time-tested strategies of billionaire real estate investors that you can use to take your investing to the next level. So head over to InvictusMultifamily.com and grab your ebook today. All right, now let's hop into the show. Hey, what's up, everybody? Welcome back to the pod. You, you asked for it. Okay, maybe you didn't they, ask they for it, didn't. but you're going to get it anyway. Whether or not you asked for it, Son whether or not you want this, it is being delivered to the table compliments of the chef it is a steaming pile oh, no that's not steam it is just a pile of tepid takes lukewarm mm-hmm. i just got pen on my jeans oh yeah so i'm we gotta, so sorry to hear that yeah we got to cancel this entire episode i gotta <laughs> go home and do laundry this is a ugh. and you're you're kind of wearing not white they're, pants but like kind of you can see pen on these jeans that's so, a bummer that's how we're starting this one off people. do do you have tied to go pen on you. No. Because you have a child. I feel like you should always have one of those in your back pocket. I just wear c- the same color of whatever she's eating. Stain proof clothes. That's my <laughs> strategy. <laughs> wear strawberry colored clothes yep. constantly. <laughs> <laughs> whatever I'm, she's eating, that's my color. <laughs> I'm sorry to hear about your pants. It's um, going to be okay. We're going to get through this. Do okay. we need to unpack this though? Or should we? I do- feel like I need to go home. I need to take a shower. Okay. I need to do laundry. It's funny. The pen broke on your pants and now you need the shower. Yeah. We need to unpack that. There's something that <laughs> there is like, I feel dirty. <laughs> okay, but this is, uh, just know Dan's going to be off of his game. He's going to be suffering a little bit, screaming internally. But uh, we're going to do these tepid takes. Luckily, these don't have to be hot takes because we don't know what we're getting into. As always, if the first time that you're tuning into one of these episodes, Reed grabs some headlines for us. We react to them. And because Dan and I both live under rocks, this is largely the first time that we ever hear about anything that's happening in the world. Mm-hmm. And so this is not a hot take. It's probably slightly warmer than a cold take. We'll see. We know words that we'll are see. on this page. But uh, let's kick it off. Let's kick it off with the most exciting one, which Ooh. is the first American city to tame inflation owes its success to affordable housing. Who could now, this be? What's interesting, yeah, so which which city do you think it is? He he asked, knowing the answer. <laughs> let's see. Let's this see. is the only type of take we've ever done that we came Boise. in already knowing. Not Boise. Boise was the darling child of like four years ago. Everybody loved mm. Boise. I love Boise. But nobody talks about Boise for how good about, reasons. How about anymore. Lincoln? Lincoln, Nebraska? Maybe. It's not Lincoln, Nebraska. The the first city to tame inflation and to bring inflation down below the Fed's target of 2%, the first major metropolitan area, was Minneapolis. Yeah, we did it. Wait, wait, wait. Can we get a record scratch? We solved the problem for the world. We did it. Look at us. We did it. How do we do it, Anthony? Well, that's part of the interesting part. Um, So the tepid take here, the way it's written, is talking about the success of affordable housing. Um, The article that I read didn't necessarily talk about it from the affordable housing angle, talked more about the 2040 plan that went into Mm -hmm. effect, which was a a very interesting plan, very progressive in a lot of ways that went about rezoning uh, different residential zoning so that you could, instead of just having single family here, now you could build multi. So it was trying to alleviate a lot of that supply demand disequilibrium, which Minneapolis was really struggling with for, still struggles with. Um, 
What's interesting about the 2040 plan, though, is it was subsequently sued, <laughs> which is the most Minneapolis thing well, that you could ever do. Was the, it was bad for the environment or something? Well, they didn't do an environmental remediation study, I guess. Something very nuanced <laughs> like that. Some some uh, city goers got really up in arms. They're like, what's the impact of this? all this development going to be on... on environmental stuff and it it was one of those things where it was like okay well that wasn't really necessary to do that type of thing but um it went to court and the 2040 plan after years after like going into effect got sued and got got shut down until they could do the study how do you sue a plan <laughs> how do you sue the city for their plan is that who they sued the city <laughs> yeah the city put it forth like it's just hilarious but anyways despite that yeah the program seems to have worked so i guess good. i mean that's the big thing is like one of the biggest factors that's making inflation look worse than it is right now, the way the Fed's measuring it, is they're just horrible way of, of factoring in uh, housing costs into inflation. They use this owner equivalent rent BS, and like, it's all over the news. If you if you more accurately measure that, the inflation picture wouldn't appear nearly as bad. But I will say, um, this is this is great to see because a we want inflation to come down, uh, we want rents to be affordable for people, and you can do it. By building more units, not with rent control. I, I don't know. I'm just seeing a correlation here. What, Build what? more units, everything seems there, to work. There out. was something else that was really interesting that went uh, tandem percentage with this. Percentage of yeah. income. So, so the last yeah. time that we talked about this concept of like the affordability index or the percentage of rent being paid in proportion to overall earning capacity... It was a couple of years ago. It was probably around, probably pre-2020 is like the last time we genuinely talked about this. But Minneapolis was always like on the on the very awesome side of this curve. Typically, you would say, you would hope to see 30% of a renter's income going towards rent. That's, that's a good, healthy amount. As you start getting further north of 30%, it becomes less healthy. So back in 2020, last time I looked at this number, it was like 28, 29% for Minneapolis, which was below that average or that that target of 30. Very, very good. Well, now it's like 38, 39%, which is above where you would want it to be ideally. However, it's very strong compared to the other metro areas. The difference in this, I think, is is nuanced. And I didn't really think about it until you just said all that. But what we talked about was uh, rent specific. This is housing costs, mm. which factors in a mortgage. Mortgage. Okay. So that's why it's different. Interesting. If we looked at just rent, I'd bet it's probably still pretty comparable. But this said specifically housing costs. Yeah, because this that was the part that was interesting. I was like, okay, well, rent in Minneapolis we know has been one of the slowest growers in the country. So I, I wasn't quite sure how it went from being like 28, 29% to 38. But regardless, when you compare it to say New York, where it was like 70, 70 yeah, 70 like percent of your earning was like percent? 60s, like it's pretty crazy. much. I mean, even just like you know, average size metro areas around the U.S., specifically down the Sun Belt, some of those areas that have been really hot, it's not uncommon for people to spend half their money on housing costs. Whereas yeah. we're up here at 39 percent, and we've been echoing this for so long, not to just make a big commercial for our market, but I mean, that's a good thing. There's a lot of uh, theoretically, if people are able to get up to 15. 50% and we're only at 39, then, you know, there's room for rent growth without pinching people too much. So mm -hmm. all in all, good stuff. I like it. This isn't Tepic. This is hot. That was a hot one. Hot that was one. a hot one. We actually knew a lot about way more about that one than we will yeah, know about Yeah, the rest any of this of we're pretty much useless on. So. Uh, so let me skip one real quickly and go to this next one because it kind of like kind of linked into it. It says the average Manhattan rent just hit a new record of $5,588 a month. Which is that seems low for Manhattan. It's up thirty percent compared to twenty nineteen. Median rent 
is 4,400. Also hit a new record. Fourth time in five months at Manhattan. Rents hit a record. Well, okay, so this one actually, I don't have enough information to make a judgment because I don't know what the average income there is. My guess is Manhattan is very, very, very high. So 5,500 per month seems like a lot for rent. But well, what's average according to there? what we just said, that's about 70% of people. <laughs> yeah, if so that if carries. you know what we're talking about, it's, I mean, but that's like New York. People know that. That they're getting that's yeah. what they're getting into but honestly i see that number i thought it would have been a little higher for yeah, me that doesn't seem like that crazy to me but that, um, it's high obviously oh the average income reed says is fifty two thousand. so that's low so that's average with median yeah listeners who reed does not have a mic we're gonna get you a mic, the, when reed, i was I in Flo- i was in florida a couple of weeks ago and we were in palm speech place Palm Springs, Palm Peach, Palm Springs, Palm Springs is California. I think I, I kept know. saying Palm Springs when I was there. You people were in were Florida, like, You're in the wrong place. But I guess it's like <laughs> where, where like all the rich people go to die. And oh we'd no, look, um, Naples. Well, we looked this up. Uh, no, it was Palm Spring or Beach. Um, it's like all along the coast. There's like all these different cities. Like Naples might be close. I don't know. I failed geography as a child. Aver- so. I guess it's like the highest average income location in the country or something like that. And we looked it up. How is it? <laughs> what do you think the average income is? I mean, uh, if everyone's retired, I'd assume it's really low. Income? It's probably I think it's income. It might be be net worth. It must be if it's retirees. It might be net worth. But what do you think it is? Uh, I mean, are we looking for net worth or income? I guess those would be two different numbers. I can't remember if it was income or net worth. Is it thousands or millions? Both were impressive to me. Both uh, impressive. (laughs) Why don't you tell me? Because I'm not... It's like 25 million. That's net worth. I'd imagine it's not income. It's probably not income. (laughs) Yeah. But that was like... I was like, the average. That's crazy. Because you know you got some billionaires pulling that number up, but you also know you got some Starbucks employees. Like well, you know what's interesting <laughs> is um, the a lot of the retirees I've heard have been getting priced out of Florida because there's been such an influx of East Coasters and foreign money yeah. coming in that like the housing prices are so ridiculous that your average grandma and grandpa are right. having to go uh, elsewhere. Our old people are like, I need the warmth and the humidity. It's good for my joints, and now I can't because Rick from Manhattan... <laughs> Who has fifty five hundred dollars a month of rent there, Rolled and is coming yacht. down here and buying my 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 villa? Yeah, <laughs> that was the crazy thing about the houses down there is like they're legit compounds and like villas. You drive by them, and you're like, what? Well, only a peasant we, would have a house. We drove like know. ten miles along the coast, like like if I was standing on the road, I could throw a rock and hit the ocean. Mm-hmm. The whole way, didn't see the ocean once. No. Just giant houses. You don't have enough money to see the ocean. (laughs) That's how I felt. Come on. It's like you have to buy a pass to see the houses. You do not have that pass. I do do not. (laughs) So Florida's crazy. Florida's a crazy place. Minnesota, we don't have crazy like that. Florida's a vibe, I will say. Mm -hmm. It's a vibe down there. What do we got next? Which one's one's tickling your your pickle here? I see the word interest rate, so I'm... Your interest is peaked. Yeah. Let's check it out. What do we got here? Higher interest rates hit... Even the self-storage market. Even self-storage no. hit? How did they get hit? How? how? Well, how? Tell me more, Tepetek. Self-storage sales, self-storage sales during the last 12 months fell 57% year over year, primarily attributed to the increased costs of debt and lack of overall liquidity in the market. Um, yeah. Well, that, well, here's something that's interesting on self-storage. I don't know the full picture here, but I follow a bunch of, um, I got a bunch of friends who do self-storage. One of the things that I was noticing over the last five years is that there was a bigger and bigger move towards like institutional money moving into Mm self-storage and going in there, automating and systematizing things and then, you know, driving up in a while. 
I feel like a large part of this transaction volume dropping could just be a function. Of, like it's obviously a function of interest rates and numbers not penciling anymore. It could also just be a function of like there was only so much self-storage to go around. And I think a lot of it has been gobbled up over the last couple of years. And the numbers just don't make sense for anybody anymore. That's fair. Yeah, I think it's one of those things that's so dependent on population in an area. And it's so easy to do, theoretically, building storage or, or, or you know, it's, it's a lot easier to build a storage facility than it is to build housing or other things like that. And so I think when there was a clear supply-demand imbalance, that ARB uh, opportunity got exploited really quick. And now we're, we got what we need and there's just less transactions. That plus high interest, I think that that's it. Mm-hmm. I, I think so. Self-storage is such an interesting, interesting space. I was talking to a guy the other day who over the last, I don't know, five years has acquired like a couple hundred million in self-storage. He went really hard in that space and he hasn't done a deal in over a year now. And he's like, I, I'm not going to touch self-storage with a 10 foot pole moving forward. He's like shifting asset classes because he just sees it as being like this really oversaturated space now from an operator standpoint. Yeah, I'm not in the space. I've always been aware of it. It's one of those things that was always interesting because it seemed so simple, theoretically. And then I think, like you just said, that everyone got in, they did the thing, and there's just not that much uh, meat left on the bone, at least right now. So Yeah, the thing thing that always stood out with me is, like, there's just no moat. There's no protection. In, in self-storage. Anybody can do it. You're not a genius. Um, the systems are pretty pretty straightforward, again, to build the, the facility right across the street from an existing facility. Yeah. I think At that might with, be complicated, but not the operations. Yeah, exactly. At least with multifamily, the, the moat is, it's a shit show. It's really hard. And a lot of people are just like, yeah, the money's good, but uh, I don't want to do all that. So. <laughs> but people. <laughs> you got to deal with all these people. All right. So let's, let's talk about people here. CBRE brokers, who are people typically, uh, Oh, CBRE brokers sale. Okay, so not brokers as in brokers, but they brokered. Um, Anyways, they brokered the sale of office component of the Minneapolis RBC Gateway Tower. Um, Let's see. Newly constructed mixed-use tower in Minneapolis. This is like our newest skyscraper. Um, Just if you guys don't have context on that because you're not from here. Um, They did this for $225 million to San Francisco-based Spear Street Capital. Um. So they're selling the office component of RBC for $225 million. Um, it's currently 99% leased to six tenants, including RBC Capital Markets, United Properties, and Polad Companies. What do you think? I don't have enough details on RBC. Like, So it's attached to Four Seasons. So this was built, uh, like I think, a year or two ago. Uh, Polads, I think, wanted to plant a flag. So they're owning the the hotel so four seasons four seasons got the why are they giving up their office component it's probably part of the that's probably part of the deal they want the hotel i mean that's what people think is cool so does four seasons own its own bit then or do you think they're renting that or how's that work um i believe uh, united properties owns the um building and four seasons is the hotels are weird because it's like you have the real estate and then you kind of like franchise Almost the hospitality side of it. Right. right. Yeah. That's kind of like yeah. it, you, they, when they built the hotel, there were a few different hotel operations they could have brought in in Four Seasons 1. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of separate. And my guess is that they plan to flip out of the, the office tower. Um, you know, it, that, that's probably part of the plan. I don't know, really. Um, 
Makes sense. I mean, how, if you're ninety nine percent full in office right now, it's how, probably a good time. How much to is it. how much is this uh, is the office component? Like, how many floors is that? It's is hard it? to tell. Yeah, that's um, that's the part that I have no context on because it's a massive building. But I don't know how much is office. How much is uh, the condos? How much is the? Hotel? If I had to guess, and this is <laughs> take it with a grain of salt, <laughs> I would tepid, guess that this is guess. about a third of that structure. Mm. I bet the other two thirds is hotel stuff that is not part of that sale so that would kind of imply the building is worth maybe around 750 you think i don't know i feel like you'd value a hotel a lot differently than you'd value uh, the office component <laughs> i told a story so, like i haven't told we are talking long. about something we don't understand office and hotels yeah i told i told a story <laughs> like uh like one of the things that got me into real estate was like looking at the buildings and wondering mm-hmm. like specifically skyscrapers who owns those things and it is these days stressed people it's kind of <laughs> totally <laughs> it's kind of funny that that's that was one of the thought processes that got me into real estate. However, all these years later, I, I still know very only a little bit more than I did initially about who actually owns these buildings and how. Like it's a very convoluted process, but it's kind of like a, a co-op. Um, could be. I mean, type it, structure. You could look at Manhattan because I think that's one of those markets where um, you know people talk a lot about who owns what. Yeah. Right? And so you look at something like the Empire State Building, and that's like. Um, a master lease. Yeah, right? I was gonna say, isn't that sublet too? In the sense kind that, like, the, the the land is owned by one group, the building another. Well, <laughs> I think a lot of stuff in New York is 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 land leases. So the land is yeah. almost always not the person who owns the building. So that's a whole different game over there. I don't really get it. Land leases. When I when I read well, books like about Zeckendorf or about uh, Francis Greenspan or Burger Greenberger of Time Equities, like those guys who like owned everything there, and they came up in the '60s, '70s, '80s doing like co-ops and. It, it just reveals to me how complicated New York City is by comparison to like every other city it feels yeah. like. It's like so complicated. There's a lot of other variables. I think even when, you know, talking to people who get into like, you know, triple net and stuff like that, it makes what we do just seem so damn simple. Just the leases on a commercial lease, it's like 90 pages. Whereas a residential lease, it's one page, two pages. A deal like big. this, like for the the contract negotiations have to be so ridiculous looking mm-hmm. through the leases like what kind of how big do you think the lease is that united properties has on this sure they're 100 pages a piece at least it's got to be massive you're yeah. gonna need a fleet a fleet of lawyers and tell let me tell you something you don't <laughs> nobody wants a fleet of lawyers that's too many that's too many <laughs> yeah and then, and then the capital stack with these types of things oh, as well i mean we have debt and equity you can't do that that's on the spreadsheet no these a lot of this <laughs> stuff I and mean, this might be differently but, but i mean if you're developing like a uh, like an office builder or something like that. I mean, you've, you've got to have all these like tax, uh, abatement el- strategies. Yeah. Oh my all the stuff. So it's like, yeah, you've got some, you've got like four different kinds of debt and then like all this mezzanine financing and all these tax things. It's, I don't know. I like how simple our stuff is. I always get the sense when it comes to like these skyscrapers that money is being manufactured out of nothing. Yep. And then when you look at the underlying economics, you're like, wait, how is this, how is this viable? And, 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 and you can't really figure it out. All you know at the end of the day is that a lot of people made a lot of money, but you're just kind of like, from where? I don't know. It's hot potato. Somebody's going to get stuck with something. A lot of people made money, but yeah. someone's probably going to. Because you, you, you calculate the leases. You're like, okay, they're, well, they're bringing in this much, and that covers this much. And you're like, but that doesn't seem like enough. <laughs> it's like, I don't know. It's crazy town to me. Yeah, we'll see. All right, last what one. We got, we got a, investing in commercial. Wait, is this the last one? Yeah, it is. 
Investing in commercial real estate during challenging economic times is a winning strategy. According to Chicago-based real estate fund manager Origin Investments, they completed an analysis showing that private real estate investments typically produced greater returns than money market funds, high-yield savings accounts, and short-term treasury notes over seven- and ten-year holding periods in the last three major recessions. Okay, so I love Origin. I love what they're doing. I think they're great guys. We actually modeled a lot of what we did in some ways uh, about them. However, that's... There's another line here, too. Oh, is there? Okay, I was just going to say, that doesn't seem like the hardest hurdle to clear. that was... I was surprised. Were you? (laughs) No. It's like, yeah, real estate pays more than a savings account. Yeah. I hope so. That's profound, Origin. But but we got something else here. It says, according to Origin Investments, the flood of new capital into risk-free alternatives... Maybe a short-sighted reaction, given that the average returns for those investments, four percent in parentheses, don't match inflation five percent in March. So yeah. that's a little bit more to speak on. I think that's interesting. I've kind of touched on this that a lot of people right now are looking at the high yields they can get from treasuries and savings accounts, and they're thinking like, man, if I'm getting five percent risk-free, you know, why would I go into a real estate deal that might only yield five or six percent in the first year? Take on this additional risk but not realizing that those returns they're getting today probably aren't going to be there a couple of years from now. And yeah. Most of the profit you're getting from real estate isn't coming in the cash flow. There's going to be refis or, or an eventual sale. So the, the actual yield you get is going to be more at the end of the day. But I think a lot of people are thinking, oh, this, the savings account's going to, going to be here. But you know, a year from now when rates are dropping, that savings account is yielding three. These deals that they could have gotten into are long gone. Yeah, this just seems like a really silly comparison at the end of the day. Real <laughs> estate, of course, like even with a lot of real estate going to zero, let's say it, I'm surprised it beat anything in the 2007 recession, but like real estate is a broad topic, right? Like there's a lot of different asset classes. If you were just look at single family and how it com- uh, compared against uh, treasuries in 2007, 2008, yeah, maybe that one got clobbered. But if you look at industrial, commercial, I'm not surprised. But this doesn't seem like you're comparing apples to apples either. Like, because the, 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 the alternative to investing in real estate typically in people's minds is not, I'm going to go put into bonds, right? Probably today it is today. It is today. It is a little short. Yeah. Which, um, which is just a function of like high bonds right now. But like, well, people always think that the status quo is going to continue. Right. And so they see their high yield savings account is is at 5% and they're just kind of like, Oh, it's always going to be like this. Well, probably not. Um, but, uh, and, and the problem there, too, is like if you're comparing cash flows of the asset in real estate to the, the bond yield, then, yeah, the bond might be right up there alongside of it. But that's only a portion of what you're getting with the real estate, which is like, again, like why it's not apples to apples. If you measure real estate on the seven, 10 year horizon that it takes to get the cash flow, the tax benefits and then the appreciation at a sale or a capital event, then you, you're just you're dealing with completely different animals here. Yeah, I think a better comparison would be. How does, um, you know, run-of-the-mill real estate, and I would probably try to get a little bit more asset-specific instead of just saying real estate. Real estate, yeah, that you know, does say us nothing. industrial, say multifamily, say something, and then compare that to public equities because I think that's what a lot yeah. of people are trying to decide between. They're like, okay, stock market, that's easy. That's liquid. I can get in and out. That's great. Real estate, I think the returns are better, but not as liquid. Like, how do they really compare as far as returns? I think that would be more useful origin uh to uh, yeah i would be interested to see how does real estate perform against uh exotic watches Hmm? i bet 
I bet that's I bet that's going to look a little bit different than 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 this. Um, I don't know what the tax situation looks like for. Uh, I saw for somebody, I saw I saw a report on this the other day. I don't know, this was months ago actually, where they were like watches have outperformed every other market. Minus Bitcoin over Says the last the watch salesman. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Let me, let me talk like, to you about buying this watch. He's like, now, now, let me, let me, let me talk you into that nice watch. Yeah, they, every like alternative investment will have a version of that. It's like you, you hear it about art, you hear about wine, you hear wine, about yep. watches, you hear about cars. Bitcoin. Oh, it's luxury like, cars. Yeah. yeah, we got a buddy who's into into luxury cars. He's into all those things. Actually, he loves. Oh, he the totally alternative is. That's space. a good point. <laughs> he loves all the non-mainstream things. Which is cool because you get some other value too. You get you get a cool thing that maybe you enjoy and theoretically it should appreciate. Maybe. Worst case scenario, you got a cool watch and a cool car. Yeah, that's yeah. what I was gonna say. Is like the only reason I can justify investing into like those kind of luxury things is maybe the return, but maybe just also to be able to tell people like, hey, I got this kind of, this cool thing. No, I, right. I would totally do it as a way to justify buying the thing, so I didn't feel like it was an expense. That way too, like, but then yeah, I can that, never that car, use. It. I can never use it. Then, like, it's oh, just an it art ruins piece. It, yeah, it just have that watch sitting on the wall. I would. <laughs> I don't know. Is that where you put watches? Yeah, when like you... a clock. What do you think a clock is? It's just a. <laughs> it's just a watch for the wall. I guess it makes sense. <laughs> All right. So those are our tepid takes. You got any other any other takes in your pants? Nope. Any other tapas? I got some pen. Tepid tapas. I got some pen on my jean. Oh, oh, they're still there. Yeah, I don't want to talk about it. We should. We should wrap this up so I can go do my laundry. Okay. Well, that's going to do it for us, everybody. We uh, hope you got something out of this. I don't presume to say value, but I don't know. Hopefully it killed 25 minutes and 11 seconds. But uh, we'll see you in the next episode. Hey, thanks for joining us for another episode of Multifamily Investing Made Simple. If you enjoyed the show, could you do us a massive favor? Head over to iTunes and leave a five-star rating and review. Your feedback, it means the world to us as it helps us grow and spread the word about multifamily investing. And don't forget, sharing is caring. So fire this episode over to any friends or family who you think could benefit from learning all about multifamily investing. Thanks, guys. We appreciate every single one of you, and we'll see you on the next show.